Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. So we normally think of morality as being a good thing. and We want people to be moral and try to be moral ourselves. But it's possible that too much of a good thing might be a bad thing. And maybe that's true in the case of morality. And maybe there's some relevance there to how we should understand morality to begin with. I've written a bit about this in my paper, Moral Extremism. And my guest today, Marcus Arvon, has also written a bit on this from a different perspective in his paper, The Dark Side of Morality. Marcus is a professor at University of Tampa, and you probably know him from the Philosopher's Cocoon blog. How are you doing, Marcus? I'm great, Spencer. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. You're welcome. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about Philosopher's uh, Cocoon first. So I'm just curious. So this seems like it's a blog geared toward mentoring people who are at my stage of the career, right? Going out on the market or preparing to get to the job market and offering advice. I consult it regularly every time I update my materials and stuff. So I was wondering what interested you in the plight of, of us, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, So I was interested in the plight of you, because I was in that plight, right? I was a struggling recent PhD. I was on the market and I felt really isolated and alone, you know, and as a former grad student, I knew a lot of other grad students at different programs who seemed to feel the same way. They kind of felt alone, not always comfortable reaching out to professors. They needed more support. And there really wasn't any kind of helpful place on the web for early career philosophers to kind of support each other in a positive environment. So I kind of just decided I would try to create one. I just kind of wanted to be helpful. And I, honestly, I needed a little bit of help myself. And so I was hoping to get people together in a, in a supportive place. That's great. So you've got these two models in your paper that are the negotiation model and the discovery model. I guess you call them just models of morality, just generally. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of explain what they are and contrast them and then argue for the advantages of one over the other. So could you just start off by telling me what those two models are and how they're different. Yeah, totally. So the discovery model is a model of moral epistemology of how people can come to have true or at least justified moral beliefs. And this is, a, I argue, the dominant model in moral philosophy, but also implicitly in everyday practice among lay people. So like the basic idea is simple. According to this model, like the moral truths are out there right? And we can discover them in principle unilaterally through our own moral perception or reflection or argumentation. So here are some examples. Death penalty opponents, they think they've discovered the truth that capital punishment is wrong. And death penalty advocates think they've discovered the opposite moral truth that you know, capital punishment's right or okay. And like, I think this is an entirely natural way to think about morality, and that I think people are led into it by the surface grammar of moral language. So like capital punishment is wrong, that sentence, it seems to report a mind independent fact in the same way like the earth is round does. And so people fall into this trap of thinking they can discover that capital punishment is wrong in kind of the same way we can discover that the earth is round through, again, perception, evidence gathering and argumentation. Okay, so everyone or at least a lot of people fall into this trap. And I think it's deeply mistaken. And I, I think it's maybe one of the biggest obstacles that we face in terms of like uh, leading to a better world. The negotiation model is kind of the opposite and that moral truths for the most part, and we can talk, we'll talk more about this later, are constituted by negotiating compromises to reasonable moral disagreements. That there isn't this sort of mind independent truth to discover, but that we need to find a compromise and that that compromise will constitute what is morally required of us or what's morally permissible and so on. So there's a rough sort of correspondence with the realism-anti-realism divide, but it's not exact, So, like in meta-ethics. So mm -hmm. more realists believe, turns out this is quite contentious, what exactly we should say about where the realism-anti-realism line is, but moral realists roughly think moral statements are true. Well, they're, they're, of mm -hmm. course, they're truth-apt, right? They can be either true or false. Some of them are true. And what makes them true are things that are independent of individual human desires or social construction. That's roughly mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. There's some people want to include a epistemic criterion that we can know about these truths and that kind of thing. But that's basically it. Mm -hmm. The discovery yep. model is broader because it would also include things like relativism and divine command theory. And those are often not considered to be realist views because they're 
dependent on the stance of human or divine agents, but yet we could still discover right. the truth about these matters. And so they would still fall under the discovery model, as you, you put it. Correct. Okay. The negotiation model that is very much compatible with anti-realism, but there are many other forms of anti-realism that would not fall under the negotiation model, right? Like error theory would not be part of the negotiation model. I don't consider the negotiation model a form of anti-realism. So I think there are moral truths. I just don't think that most of them are discoverable. So I do think, and we'll talk about this, that some, a few high level regulative moral ideals we can discover. But I think that most moral truths in everyday life are forged by negotiation, right? And by compromise. And, and I think this is a realist view. I think those things are truths. Look, here's a good example. I think there are things that you and I are morally bound by today, moral requirements that exist and are true that didn't exist 20 years ago in this culture. I think that moral truths change, but I think that they are real. So I would not describe my view as an anti-realist view. It's rather a complex form of moral realism. Okay, but you'd be giving up on the stance independence criterion for realism that most but not all realists want to include. So first of all, yes, I do give up the stance independent idea. I don't think I'm prepared to accept that, quote unquote, most moral realists uh, insist upon stance independence. I think that robust moral realists in insist upon stance independent. But I think there are a lot of people that uh, are properly categorized as moral realists who think that morality is stance dependent. I think Aristotelians are moral realists implicitly, and they think that morality is stance dependent on my reading of Aristotle. All right. I guess it doesn't really matter where the realism, anti-realism uh, line is to be drawn. I get where your view is. All right. So in this paper, The Dark Side of Morality, you contend that there's one major disadvantage of the discovery view, at least practically speaking, maybe morally speaking even, which is that it leads to bad consequences. Its acceptance makes the world worse. It leads to polarization. It leads to maybe what I would call extremism and mm -hmm. that this is an advantage for the negotiation model. So uh, could you explain that? Yeah. So the short story is I, I do think that the discovery model inherently lends itself to what you call moral extremism. I think here's what the discovery model tends to lead people to do. One person says, I'm right. The other person says, no, I'm right. And then we fight. And that fighting oftentimes includes violence, right? And so here's the, the basic idea. When one side of a moral disagreement thinks they've discovered the God's honest truth, then people on the other side immediately become evildoers to be converted to the truth. And to me, this is very much akin to religious persecution of eons past or millennia past. If you have the right God and someone else has the wrong God, well, you got to make them believe the right God or else. That's the short story. The longer story is in the paper that there are these three empirically well-supported theories of polarization and the discovery model basically plays into the phenomena that they describe so that all three of the major theories of social polarization predict that the discovery model should increase social polarization. And I might add, particularly in a modern digital environment where people can exchange information very quickly and form, you know, as we say, online mobs, right? All three, again, of the, the empirical theories suggest that that should amplify whatever polarizing effects the discovery model has. Do you want to just run through what the three theories are of polarization? Yeah, sure. So the three theories are called social comparison theory informational influence theory, and self-categorization theory. The first theory, social comparison theory, holds that polarization occurs uh, in part by people seeking to prove themselves to an in-group. So the idea is people prove themselves to their group by adopting progressively more extreme positions on their group side of things to make it clear that they're the truest of true believers. And then because most people in the group do this, the average views in the group shift dramatically in the more extreme direction over time. That's the first view. People try to prove themselves to their group members by becoming more extreme. And we see this in moral contexts, right? You say, you know, th those people that want us to wear masks, they're trying to take our freedom away, right? And uh, they're devils. I saw that in an interview last night. 
So the second theory, informational influence theory, holds that polarization occurs in part by how information is shared. So people with similar interests tend to group together. They expose each other to different sources of information, information that exposes them to new arguments and facts that, quote unquote, support their own side and make the other side look like evildoers. We, we see this all over the place. Certain types of people with certain political and moral views, they get their news from Infowars and Infowars tells a particular extreme story of things. People on the other side of things, they get their news from MSNBC, and their side tells a very different extreme uh, perspective. So that's the second view about how polarization occurs. And then finally, uh, the self-categorization holds that polarization occurs in part by in-groups regarding out-groups with different views as threatening them. Right. So again, like consider COVID and mask wearing. It's a lot easier to rally people in your group to your cause if you cast those that are advocating mask wearing as devils uh, than if you cast them for what they really are, which is just people of goodwill who disagree with you on the importance of wearing masks and fighting a terrible disease. Just to uh, cross the T here, how do those things specifically connect with the discovery model? Yeah. Right. So look, when you think you've discovered a moral truth, the one thing that you try to do is you try to prove yourself to your groupmates, people who think that they've discovered similar moral truths. So you defend a more extreme position to show that you're the true believer on that particular view. So if you are anti-abortion, here's one way to prove yourself to your groupmates. You say the people on the other side are baby killers and they're just out to you know murder infants in utero. Similarly, once you've discovered the moral truth, you're going to share information that your side is super right and the other side is super evil. If you're, again, against abortion, you're going to show really awful pictures of dismembered fetuses and all the rest. And then finally, related to both of these first two things, once you've discovered the, you know, the God's honest moral truth, then your group is going to see the other side as threatening evildoers, people to be, quote unquote, conquered by your moral truth. And those, are, again, are the three phenomena that the three empirical theories of polarization predict should lead to polarization. So all three of these empirical theories presuppose some notion of we're looking for the truth with a capital T. You know, obviously that's central to the discovery models. Thus, if that were taken off the table, none of these three theories of how polarization is supposed to work could be operative. Is that the basic idea? There can still be other phenomena that can contribute to polarization. But the idea is all three of these theories predict that the discovery model, people's views about moral truth should play a significant role in social polarization. Not the only thing, but that it will play a very big role in why people are polarized. And there is evidence of this, that moral polarization is one of the strongest forms of polarization. And there are, there are other forms of polarization too, such as over facts. And we, we can maybe talk about that too, non-moral facts. Okay, so I guess I wanted to ask, before we come back to this question of polarization and the extent to which the discovery model is leading to it, what do you think is philosophically at stake here? Do you think this is indirect evidence that the discovery model is false or that the negotiation model is more likely to be true? I have a really complicated answer to this question. So I think there's a ton at stake here. I mean, I think that most of the bad stuff that happens in the world has three related sources. Selfishness, people justifying morally atrocious behavior on moral grounds, and then refusing to see things from other people's perspective and compromising with people of goodwill. I think like, if we take a serious look at like why all of the terrible stuff happens in this world, a lot of it comes from those three sources. My, my general project is trying to reduce morality to prudence, so prudential self-interest, and to argue that when we approach morality from that perspective, we can see that negotiating compromises with other people of goodwill is a prudential and moral requirement that we can expect a better world for ourselves and for others because it harnesses a kind of self-interest into a productive way where we're not justifying terrible behavior on moral grounds, but actually engaging with one another in a more positive way. If we were just more honestly prudent, in other words, we might be less immoral that, that is my view. I argue that morality is reducible to prudence, or at least that's how we should understand morality. Well, I can't go that far. But the weaker claim, I think there's definitely something to that. I'm reading an interesting book right now called Woke Inc. about corporations and the sort of virtue signaling stuff that they do. And it's this author's contention that, in fact, a lot of this covers up much more destructively selfish 
behavior than they could otherwise get away with. And if, if corporations just sort of kept themselves to these morally not terribly inspiring goals of earning money for their uh, shareholders and that kind of thing, and did not try to rise to these lofty ambitions, we could more easily, you know, scrutinize them and keep them under control and predict their behavior and prevent them from adversely influencing other institutions. Yeah. So I don't know if there's this really interesting book listeners might want to check out called Virtuous Violence, this 2014 book um, written by an anthropologist and psychologist. They basically detail like in pretty stunning detail how like most forms of violence in the world today and across cultures and across historical epochs are morally motivated. And basically what we see throughout history is we we see selfish people dressing up their selfishness in explicitly moral terms. So, I mean, the most obvious case here is like Hitler and the Nazis, like they just were out to advance their own interests. And of course, he dressed it up in a moral imperative, right? He thought it's a moral imperative to cleanse Germany and for Germany to rule the world. And I think this is what you see in a lot of human life. And this is in part one of the central reasons that I want to reduce morality to prudence is because I think once we divorce moral truth from truths about prudence, then people end up doing this a lot. They've discovered the mind-independent moral truth, and it just so happens that that mind-independent truth coheres with their own selfish interests and enable them to justify doing terrible things to other people. That's the picture that I'm out to combat. So I think maybe I somewhat disagree with you. I agree that this phenomenon of using morality as a cover for immoral actions, that's definitely a thing. And we see a lot of it in corporate culture, in politics, in history. I think though with the Nazis and with various totalitarian movements, you really do see movements that include many true believers, people who are willing to sacrifice themselves for a a completely morally misguided cause. They're fired up with this unreflective zeal and not thinking about what they're doing. But in fact, that's compatible, I think, with, with your model, is it not? Yeah, right. So this is the problem. Was you know what Hitler was doing prudent? They were true believers, sure, but it ended up them losing a world war and Hitler putting a bullet in his head. They weren't thinking about the potential long-term consequences of what they were doing. And if they were, at least on my view, they would see not a good idea to be a Nazi and try to take over the world. Right. Now this might be jumping ahead a bit, but since we've gone in this direction, I suppose I want to ask that as far as reducing morality to prudence, I mean, I I think it's true that immorality tends to be self-destructive, but as Mm -hmm. far as reducing morality to prudence, I don't want to say that it just seems to me that it's almost the fact that Hitler's actions were so imprudent and worked out so badly for him in the, the long run, it doesn't seem so central to why I want to say it was immoral, you know? I mean, if he would have succeeded and created this thousand-year Reich or whatever, mm-hmm. that would have been even worse. And maybe the, the immorality of the project is one of the things that doomed it to fail. But it just seems to me that I don't want my analysis of that kind of evil to be you know, reducible to mm-hmm. self-interest, even understood in a, in a much more enlightened way. Yeah. I, look, I know you don't want that. And I know a lot of philosophers don't want that. I just don't think that we can do better than that. So a a lot of philosophers want to defend categorical mind-independent moral truths. I I get the desire to have that sort of thing. And in fact, my theory explains that desire. So on my, my view, prudent people internalize dispositions to think that they and others categorically ought to do certain things. And on my view, those categorical dispositions, beliefs and desires are prudent. So my account explains why you want more out of morality than prudence. But I also don't think we can get more because I don't think that those mind independent categorical truths actually exist. Okay, I think we'll probably circle back to that later. Uh, (laughs) Sure. That's going to be a very hard sell. You'll know from previous interactions with me. Totally. I think I did ask you whether or not this bears on whether the negotiation model is likely to be true. And you said the answer was complicated. And now I can't remember what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So let me think about this for a second. Whether it bears on whether the negotiation model is likely to be true. Yeah. So in the following way. So I argue that negotiation is required by prudence. 
And if it turns out that the negotiation model realizes a world where we're not at each other's throats and trying to impose our moral views through a gun, which is what we've seen all throughout history, if it realizes that world, a world of greater cooperation and unity and less violence, morally motivated and otherwise, then I think that is a confirmation of my claim that it's a prudent way to live. And since I want to reduce morality to prudence, a confirmation of the, the view as a whole. Okay, so it's a function of this pragmatism you've got operating in the background. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe not so much in the background. Now, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the idea of moral facts being subject to negotiation, it seems like that this might just be a sort of concealed might makes right sort of thing. I mean, you negotiate with what power you have, what compromises you have to make depends on what sort of power you've got. Mm -hmm. and. Yeah, that's that doesn't seem like that could be the genesis of basic moral claims to me. So, right. We've been talking about negotiation so far. But to be more specific, my view is that morality is a matter of fair negotiation, where we're seeking to correct for power and bargaining inequalities and inequities. And I think this is what a lot of what is happening in the world is you know, with respect to justice and so on, is trying to do, is trying to correct for what are regarded as uh, unfair, unequal bargaining power between parties that have legitimate interests. And so that's part of the story I want to tell as well. And I think it coheres really well with how people think about negotiation, That right? That there is something off morally if negotiation allows one person or one group to simply exert their will over another. Okay. But when you put in this fair negotiation. It's not just negotiation, it's fair negotiation. And that's what makes mm -hmm. it not collapse into might makes right. Now, mm -hmm. it seems like you're imbuing it with this moral content that I thought yep. it wasn't supposed to have at this level. Like, so what do you mean by fairness? And how does that make this a, a, a view that's really reducing morality to prudence? Well, okay. So a short story is that I argue that prudence requires fairness to oneself across time. So we act in the present, but the world as a whole is extremely unexpected. So we're trying to live a good life for ourselves, but our future is unexpected. We don't know which of our future selves we're going to be. And so we need to try to treat our future selves fairly. And so our future selves, some of them are more self-interested than others. Others are more interested in other people and their interests. And so I argue prudence is fairness to oneself requires us to treat other people fairly. Long story short, there is another philosopher, I think Ryan Muldoon, who argues for a, a, a view somewhat similar to mine about negotiating political standards, but he doesn't have any kinds of moral constraints in his view. And a lot of critics have said that's a problem because it seems like we need some kind of moral constraints on negotiation. And I agree. My view does argue that there are some broad moral constraints that should inform negotiation. I think we can discover those constraints. And a large part of my project is to explain why that is. And I can g give you some examples of why I think those constraints are, are, are uniquely rational and they, they should guide and constrain negotiation. So that's the short story is that the view about negotiation is informed by moral constraints, but those constraints are, again, rooted in prudence. Okay, so the moral constraints, the, the fairness in the fair negotiation, that is ultimately itself cashed out in more basic prudential terms. I mean, I can say more about the, you know, these, these regulative ideals that can constrain negotiation, if you like, give a few examples. Sure. Okay, so my moral system defends four principles of fairness. One is a regulative ideal of coercion avoidance and minimization. So broadly speaking, like uh, an ideal of respecting autonomy. The second is a moral ideal of mutual beneficence of helping others. And these are ideals, right? So they're, they're not absolutes. They can be weighed against one another. And that's what the third principle, the principle of fair negotiation is about, is about negotiating with others who have disagreements and preferences related to how to apply the ideals to the real world in a fair way. Okay. So Let's bring this down to earth because that was all very abstract. So let's think about Hitler and the Nazis, right? And, and their regulative ideals. 
Hitler and the Nazis, they weren't motivated by a, a coercion minimization ideal. They were actively and openly seeking to coercively impose their will on everybody else, on the Jews and undesirables in their borders and on the rest of the world that they were trying to invade. And they were doing all of this in a highly uncertain world where people don't like that. It's not an accident, in my view, that Germany lost the war and Hitler put a bullet in his head because the basic regulative ideals that Hitler was working with impose my and Germany's will on everyone else was an imprudent one. The same goes for slavery, in my view. Slavery might have seemed prudent in the short run, but prudence on my account is a long run question. And here's the problem. When you murder and enslave people, they and their allies, they tend to fight back. And there's usually more of them than there are of you. And so slavery is unsustainable. It leads to things like brutal civil wars that the slaveholders ultimately lost, right? And so slavery, treating people unfairly, trying to coerce them and exert your will over them and unfair bargaining power, not prudent, not moral. But the, the regulative ideals of fairness that I argue, that I defend, coercion and minimization, mutual assistance and fair bargaining are prudent ones. They're prudent because unlike fascist and slavery ideals, they foster us getting along in a sustainable way for mutual benefit. So could you say something about how the non-coercion principle comes out, self-interest or prudence? Because it seems to me like it's weird to think of coercing yourself. I guess that you could think of you know, tying yourself to the mast or throwing away all of the alcohol so that you can't drink it or something like that. But typically, I, I would think that coercion in, in paradigmatic cases involves relationships between people. That's right. So to understand my theory of prudence, we need to understand its structure. What is it to make a prudent choice? It's to make a choice that's good for you, for your life as a whole. But here's the thing. When you make choices in the present, you're making choices that are going to affect your future. And the problem is, is that you don't know how your future is going to go. All of our decisions are made under extreme uncertainty about the future. And so here's the basic idea to, to simplify it a great deal. When you coerce people, that can have effects on your future self. And here's the basic idea. We learn, or prudent people learn, that when you coerce other people, they tend to fight back. And that puts your future self in a difficult position. This is what happened to Hitler, wanted to coerce people, and it put his future self in a terrible position. That, on my account, is how a prudent person doesn't think. They should be motivated by coercion minimization ideals so that they don't end up like Hitler. Well, I suppose since now we're on the subject of the relationship between prudence and morality, I guess I want to push back on this idea that my obligations to others are to be explained in terms of prudence or self-obligation, mm -hmm. just in the sense that when I think of my obligations to like my distant self or to some other person, I don't see why the one is more fundamental than the other. It's not intuitive. I would need a strong theoretical motivation to see why one is supposed to be explained in terms of the other. Because as mm -hmm. far as I see it, it's like I've got reasons that apply to myself. I've got reasons that apply to other people. I might just have some other kinds of reasons that have to do with just making the world better, but aren't toward any particular person. Mm -hmm. It seems like I've got an array of different reasons and I'm not seeing why I should pound the square peg into the round hole and make all of these one kind of reason at bottom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so I'll start with some empirical reasons, and then I'm going to turn to the deeper theoretical basis for it. So here are some empirical reasons to think that the story that I'm telling is broadly accurate. So it turns out that there are certain kinds of interventions that can be used to depress certain areas of brain activity using magnets placed near particular parts of the skull. And it turns out that in experiments, when they depress the, the parts of the brain that deal with representing your own future self and, and future concern, actually become less concerned with how their treatment of other people and uh, treat other people less fairly. It also turns out that when you put people in positions of power called hubris syndrome, and people become in a position somewhat similar to Gaiji's ring, where they think that they can just treat people with wanton abandon, that they actually lose the ability to empathize with others and treat people less fairly. 
So th- those are two things. Third thing, uh, psychopaths can recognize what's considered right and wrong, that it's right to help people and wrong not to kill people. They can, quote unquote, recognize those claims, but they don't, quote unquote, care, so to speak. And the question is, why don't they care? And it turns out that they lack mental time travel, the ability to care and represent a, their own future self. So there are all these converging empirical facts that suggest that the general picture I'm telling of moral cognition is broadly right. And furthermore, there's a ton of uh, empirical work suggesting that people are dominantly means-end reasoners. And and so this brings us to the deeper aspect of the picture. So why do I think that we should reduce morality to prudence? So there are some practical reasons, and this is what we've been talking about today, is that I think that the view that morality is distinct from prudence has bad effects in the real world because it leads to polarization and violence. And I think that understanding morality in terms of prudence is a promising way to move away from that kind of world that we've lived in throughout human history. The deeper story is evidential. Let's think about rationality. How do ordinary people understand rationality? How do people in the academy who aren't philosophers understand rationality? And what does the science tell us about how ordinary people understand rationality? Here's the answer. Instrumental means and reasoning is dominant in human life. Everyday experience supports this. Empirical science supports this. We see it all across Plato's dialogues. Every single person that Socrates debates justice with, Thrasymachus, Glaucon, Adamantus, Polus, Gorgias, Callicles, they all approach questions from an instrumental perspective. We see it every day, right? If you ask any of your students whether there are particular means they ought to adopt to achieve their goals, 100% of them are going to say yes. If you ask them like whether they're moral facts, like a lot of them look at you in total bemusement. They don't know. What they really want to know is why should I do the things that you're telling me are moral to do given what I care about? I think we look around the world around us, we see that people are means and uh, deliberators. If you look at all the bad stuff that goes along in the world, politics, people are you know, engaging in means and reasoning. I think we've got good evidence that it's the dominant uh, approach to rational deliberation that people endorse explicitly and implicitly. And for this reason, it's why it's the dominant view across the rest of the academy in economics, political science, rational choice theory, game theory, and so on. We deliberate instrumentally like all the time about what to eat, which movies to see, what to do for a living. And it's only the small group of moral philosophers who think there's this other kind of rationality on top of this, this kind of categorical Kantian moral rationality. And like, I understand, again, and my account explains why some people want this sort of thing. I just don't think that there's a good case to be made for it. Every case, at least in my view, that is been given to defend categorical requirements comes across as uh, entirely unconvincing. And I think it's for that reason that it hasn't uh, taken hold more broadly. Yeah, we're about as as close on this as the North and the South Pole of the (laughs) Earth. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hypothetical reasoning we should do away with. I think it's all categorical at bottom. At the very least, though, I think, yeah, it's true that in ordinary talk, we say, I bought a, a movie ticket because I wanted to see the movie. And of course, we wouldn't expect people in ordinary conversation to say, this is going to realize some hedonic or aesthetic value or, or something, improve my appreciation for art and then thereby realize it. Like you just wouldn't expect people to make fully clear their ends often because we just expect them to be shared by the other people we're talking to. So there's no need to make them fully explicit. So appeals to, to the way we ordinarily talk, I think, are are not totally convincing here. Right. But I, I don't think the appeal is just to how we talk. It's how we approach questions. Like, again, all of the people that Socrates is arguing with in his dialogues, they're all approaching moral questions the way that I'm saying people approach moral questions instrumentally. And... This is not only my experience with students, but when to the extent that science has studied how people deliberate and represent even moral requirements, it is in this instrumental way. I mean, I detail in the book, like all of different brain regions that correlate with moral belief. And what are they? Their mental time travel about the future. They're judging risk and reward. 
there is this work by like Daniel Batson and What's Wrong with Morality that shows that when people's like principles, quote unquote, moral principles are at odds with their perceived self-interest, people do what is in their interest. And so I think there's a, a, a ton of evidence that instrumental uh, rationality is the dominant form of, of human deliberation. Well, those people you named in Plato's dialogues were set up to be foils, were they not? Like, of course, those yeah. were the instrumentalists. Do you think Socrates was an instrumentalist in the same way? Well, so the answer is yes and no. So on the one hand, Socrates thinks there's this form of justice, there's this objective fact of the matter. But if we actually look at the content of the arguments about like the just soul, it really is like instrumental in the sense that it's like, uh, how do you live uh, a life that will advance your your desires, which is to live happily. And so in that in that sense, it is instrumental. But here's the issue, and this is my issue. They are the foils, and they're the right foils. They're the right foils because this really is how uh, people deliberate. And at the end of the day, they're unconvinced by Socrates. Most of my students are unconvinced by Socrates because we try to do more. When philosophers try to do more than defend morality on instrumental grounds, when they try to say that there's a form of justice, or when Kant argues that there are these categorical imperatives, it's that point that the arguments seem not to work. <laughs> I guess I should ask you about the, the Ring of Gygus case, because that case in book two of the Republic is, I mm-hmm. think, meant to illustrate that we can think about ethics and prudence coming apart, like really, really radically coming mm-hmm. apart. At least prudence, I think, understood in this sort of an instrumental way, because here you've got Gygus and he's got the ring and he can turn invisible. And what does he want to do? He wants to murder, become the king, have sex with whoever he wants to. And that kind of thing does not have particularly lofty desires. And if we were to really, really work through this thought experiment the way it was supposed to go, we would have to Mm -hmm. imagine that he would even be shielded from guilt, right? Because that's an internal Mm -hmm. sanction for for moral misbehaviors. Mm -hmm. The function of the invisibility ring is to shield Gygus from all of the negative consequences of doing as as he wishes. And so that would have to include the psychological consequences of doing what you right. to. I think it's important to bring that out because, yes. because a lot of my students say, well, I still wouldn't do that if I had the ring because then I'd feel guilty. And I, and I right. want to say, well, wait, if we really think about what this experiment is supposed to do, that's supposed to be controlled for. Yep. So I appeal to intuition. It sounds like you're, you're all gaga about brain scans and stuff, so you won't care about that. But appeal to intuition, I think he still has a reason not to behave the way he does, even though he can totally get away with it. Even if we imagine this guy can get away with this in perpetuity, you know, he still shouldn't do that. Can can your account accommodate that intuition or would you reject it? I absolutely reject it. I'll make the case for it. And I'll make the case for it right now. All right. There is an example exactly like this in Star Trek, the original series. The humans run into a race of aliens called the Kelvins. And the Kelvins are this race of individuals that have no feelings of guilt, no feelings of regret, and they can freeze human beings at will. They've got a little device where they can freeze human beings and just stop them in their tracks and do whatever the hell that they want to human beings. And they do. Right? They kill human beings at will. They treat them badly at will. And of course, when the human beings are unfreezed, they complain about it. They say, oh, you're doing terrible stuff to us. And the Kelvins just laugh. They, they say, what are you telling me? I have a reason not to kill you, right? Like I can do whatever I want to you and I don't feel guilty about it. I got no reason not to kill you. I think that that episode of uh, Star Trek, exactly right. Exactly right. And it turns out the point of the episode is that in the end, the Kelvins ultimately begin to feel certain personal connection to human beings. So whereas they never had any guilt before, all of a sudden now they start to have it. And it's at that point, that point only, that they begin to see why they have a reason not to kill human beings. 
But that on my account is precisely it introduces the kinds of consequences of prudence that you're saying are ruled out. So I think it's absolutely the case. Once you take all prudential reasoning out, no reason at all to treat people what you're calling moral. None. It's only when the prudential aspects begin to enter in the picture that any reasons take hold. Suppose there were a sequel and this happened. The Kelvins realized there was a pill that they could take that would alleviate them of this connection that they had built up with the humans. If they found this guilt to be kind of annoying because they really liked freezing them and tormenting them, well, they could just take this pill and you might think, oh, well, they feel guilty about taking the pill. No, because the pill would take away that guilt too. And then they could go on freezing them and all of that. So would you say they would have no reason to take that pill if they just decide they, they would like to? That's a great question. At, at that point in the story, um, the answer is no, because they would have prospective regret about taking the pill. They already are, right, have these connections to human beings. And so when they would think about the prospect of taking the pill, they would have prospective regret about it. Like, I, I, I don't want to do that. Like, I would, you know, hypothetically regret doing that. And, and that's how I think that human beings, ordinary human beings actually deliberate. And that's what your students say. It's like, oh, if I was wearing a Gyges, I would end up regretting it. So I don't want to be like Gyges. I think that's exactly what's going on. Wait, would they have pr this guilt, this perspective guilt you said before or after they took the pill? Before. Before. Okay. Well, in that case, it's like, I'm going to go to the dentist tomorrow I've been procrastinating it for a long time. I really don't want to do it. It's going to be unpleasant, but I'm building that unpleasantness into my, you know, future utility calculus mm -hmm. and expecting there would be more unpleasantness to come if I, if I didn't eventually make myself do it. Sure. So why couldn't it be something like that where they decide to take the pill and they do feel guilty about it, but they're like, well, it'll be short lived. The pill will take effect pretty soon. And then I won't have to deal with with that perspective guilt or any guilt of the future. I mean, if they didn't have a connection to human beings that would make them feel that kind of enough perspective, uh, perspective guilt, then I don't think they've got any reason not to do it. Or at least not a sufficient reason not to do it. And that would make the human beings in the story really unhappy. And they'd say, you morally ought to do it. And the Calvin's would say, no, nah, I mean, no. Just like they did before. Okay. Right. Uh, part of the, the reason that I think that this is important is that I think that, and this is what is, I think, nice about the story, is that going beyond that and just insisting that the Kelvins are making a moral mistake, it, it amounts to a kind of epistemic browbeating, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, they don't claim to see any reasons whatsoever, but we, we humans, we know the, the, the objective truth. That's just epistemic browbeating to me. So part of the reason that I love Plato's dialogues, at least at the outset, is because they're taking serious foils, people that are means and deliberators. And I, and I think at the end of the day, Socrates isn't fair to them. And, and Thrasymachus goes off angry in part because his uh, arguments at a certain point do kind of amount to that kind of epistemic browbeating. No more epistemic browbeating than from the other side, I think. You're saying, well, there's just nothing more. It's just this desire. It's just desire. Well, like, no, I think I can and occasionally do reflect on what it is I ought to desire, how it is I ought to behave, and try to adjust my ends accordingly. Of course, not with all that much success because I'm a mortal human being <laughs> and fallible and all of that, but I think my students are divided when they think about the Geiges case. Mm -hmm. Some of them do answer the way you would, like, well, if I wouldn't even feel bad about it, then I guess I really wouldn't have a reason. I haven't taken a, even an informal poll of this, but there are a, a sizable number who think like, well, no, it would still it, it's still bad of him to do that, even if he can get, get away right. with it. Like, rightness is not just getting away with it. So let me explain why I don't think it's epistemic browbeating in the opposite direction. Okay. So let's begin with a physical case. So this came up at a recent conference. Suppose we're trying to explain why the, the ocean tides go in and out. And uh, we, so we've got a theory of gravity and we uh, know how the moon goes around uh, the earth. 
And so here's the simple explanation, right? Gravity and the mass of the moon going around the Earth causes the ocean tides to go in and out. Now, there might be some other people that think there's something more going on than that. So all that evidence is right there in front of us. We, we experience gravity in everyday life and we experience mass in everyday life. And so we develop a, a theory based on those firm foundations that we can all observe together. But then there are some people that are torn, whether there's something more going on, like maybe there are invisible garden gnomes, that they're really the cause of the ocean tides going in and out. Here's the idea. If somebody wants to claim that that, that there are garden gnomes that are the correct explanation, the burden of proof is on them because they're asserting these invisible things that people are torn about that we don't have clear evidence for. The, the default assumption should be the original theory that it's mass and gravity that are doing it. And the people that want to def- defend the extra invisible thing, the burden of proof is on them. And so I want to say the same thing about morality. As in everyday life, people recognize instrumental requirements. We deliberate instrumentally about all kinds of things. We have desires. We can understand what our, we ought to do to, to achieve those desires, right? Our students get this 100%. But when you begin to talk about the invisible stance-independent moral facts, then the question arises. And the Kelvins are, are skeptical of these facts. They say, I don't see any reason why I shouldn't kill human beings. A lot of our students are skeptical of these facts. So the burden of proof falls on those people to show that these invisible facts really exist. I claim that burden of proof has never been met. Well, there's a whole lot of empiricism in that. But okay, facts about prudence have never been visible either. I mean, have you ever seen a prudential fact? Have you ever seen one? It depends on what you mean by a prudential fact, right? So a prudential fact is reducible to what makes a person's life go well in terms of satisfying their preferences or desires over time. And we can observe what sorts of things do that. You can observe a preference being satisfied. You can't observe anyone having a reason to satisfy it. That's a priori. I've got a paper called The Normative Stance, where I argue that we can give an empirical reduction of normative propositions to um, semantic behavior. So I think we can observe semantic behavior. What do we say, right? A, A good move in chess just is a move that helps you win the game. So there are statements that are true about a good move in chess. We can observe the truth of those statements because that's what the statements mean semantically. Same thing with means end reasoning. I was there for that paper, too, and I didn't agree with that one either. (laughs) Uh, It's amazing that people on the other side of the realism, anti-realism divide have the weirdest idea of what a moral fact is. Like, it just seems like invisible garden gnome. That is that is your that is your chosen analogy. Okay, it doesn't seem at all mysterious to me that I've gotten reasons that apply to me, even if I don't want to abide by them. It just doesn't seem so strange. And it seems to me that any account of morality or prudence that is in any way normative is going to, in some sense, go beyond the empirical facts. And I think there's this slippage between means and reasoning in terms of like, if Marcus wants a lacroix, which is, I think is what you're drinking now, <laughs> and, and he has the means to get one, that, that, then he will. And that's purely empirical. But the claim that mm-hmm. he has a reason to get up and go to the fridge and get one of those not too sugary fizzy drinks, that is a further claim. And that is not empirical. Yeah, right. Yeah, we just we disagree. <laughs> right? You think that there's a, a fundamental divide between the normative and the descriptive, and that is what I, I do want to deny with using an empirical account of normative semantics. Well, let's go down one level of abstraction. Okay. And I wanted to get back to the relative merits of the discovery model versus the negotiation model. And so mm-hmm. you admit that things could go wrong, for the discovery model that could lead to a worse outcome in some sense that we each would would Mm -hmm. recognize as a bad outcome. And Mm -hmm. I want to ask whether it might be the case that a negotiation model, giving up on the idea that there's a discoverable moral truth, why that might not lead to other bad outcomes like uh, apathy, right? Because Mm -hmm. if everything's up for negotiation, there's never any reason to dig in your heels and insist that this is the truth, as perhaps sometimes we should do. So on my account, not everything is up for negotiation. On my view, we should not negotiate with slaveholders or fascists or Nazis. Why is it not prudent to uh, negotiate with them? For the obvious reason. Neville Chamberlain showed why uh, you shouldn't negotiate with Nazis in appeasement, because 
they don't have the regulative ideals that are appropriate to negotiate and compromise with because their ideals are simply to impose their will upon you. So in that respect, I don't think that my account is conducive to apathy, right? There are certain things that are to be fought against, not merely negotiated with or compromised with. So that's one thing to say. I think the other thing to say is more positive, that the account far from leading to moral apathy can be expected to lead to a world with a lot less war and violence and oppression in it. I've mentioned Star Trek already today, and I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And one of the things that I've always been fascinated about it is the future described in their fictional universe, right? So, you know, they describe humanity as coming a hair's breadth away from wiping themselves out through war and genocide. And humanity somehow figures out as a result of these terrible things that they've done to each other that they've got to try something new. And somehow we're told as the viewers, and we're never given the details, they found a way to cooperate without war and poverty. Uh, and I'm not so naive as to think that, like, you know, my philosophy of negotiation is going to save the world in this Star Trek y way. But I'm optimistic that reconceptualizing morality in terms of prudence and negotiation may be a step in a better direction than where we are now and where we've been right through human history. That at least is the thought and hope given the kind of evidence that I do, some of which is empirical about how human beings are actually motivated to behave and cognize moral issues. To the first point about we shouldn't compromise with fascists, uh, we shouldn't compromise with slaveholders, we shouldn't compromise with jihadists and communists. Can we add those to the list? We shouldn't compromise with jihadists who are extremists, right, who are just trying to impose Islamic law on the rest of the world. Yeah, jihadists. And there there are... That's a jihadist. Well, so depends on your interpret. So there are different accounts of jihad, as I understand it, in Islam, right? No, but a jihadist jihadist I'm talking about, about the radical. Oh, the, the radical, absolutely, right? You should not compromise with the radical that is trying to impose their will on the rest of the world. Now, when it comes to the communist, I, I think that things are a little bit more tricky. I think that a lot of communists, at least in principle, ha- have the l- regulative ideals of coercion, minimization, and mutual assistance. I mean, strictly speaking, Marx, at the end of the day, wants a world in which there is no state, the state isn't coercing people. And in his view, people aren't coerced to have to work or starve. And of course, he he thinks that a true communist society would not have any state, and it would be people mutually helping each other. So that kind of communist, I want to say, is to be negotiated with. But here's the problem, as you well know, and as I well know, practice, right? Like in the Soviet Union, when communists have come to power in the ways that they have, concentrating all power in the hands of someone like Lenin or Stalin, then it morphs into something very different, right? It morphs into a kind of authoritarianism and fascism. And so it's at that point that it needs to, I think, be fought in the same way that an extre- you know, a, a religious extremist or you know, a Nazi needs to be fought. So it's really important to pay careful attention to whether the people in question, plausibly are motivated by the regulative ideals or whether they're motivated by something else. And that is one of the main tricks in international affairs and human life. Well, I think, however committed to a non-coercive end you theoretically are, if your commitment in practice is to coercive methods, it doesn't morph into anything else when it comes into power. It just becomes what it's been all along, more empowered. Yeah, I mean, that was my my takeaway from Mark Bray's book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. He's a committed kind of Marxist who believes in street violence against people he says are fascists. And then he, he says, but eventually we're going to have this world where there's there's no hierarchy and there's no violence. And I, I just think like, yep. well, yeah, you can say that, but like, yeah. you know, I, I see how this would go. But uh, the point I'm getting mm-hmm. to though, people are going to disagree over who we can't negotiate with. And it seems like both the right and the left, in, in terms of actual polarization, the right sees the, you know, the left is like basically Antifa, Antifa light, and the, the, the left sees the, the right is like basically fascist or fascist light. Mm-hmm. The result is that all of the polarization that you're worried about through the discovery model, all of that seems like it's just as much a problem with the negotiation model, because the things we're polarized over is who can we negotiate with in good faith and fairly. 
Great question. And I think it's it, the right place to put pressure on. So I want to say a, a couple of things. First of all, about communists and Marxists. So I actually argue in one of my papers that this is called non-ideal justice is non-ideal fairness, that this is a, a huge problem with how Marxism has been understood, because although they have coercion, minimization and mutual assistance ideals as ends, that when it comes to the means to achieving those ends, they don't have those same ideals. You can adopt any means whatsoever, no matter how coercive and punitive, to bring about ultimate communism. And it's at that point I want to say that they don't share the, the relevant regulative ideals. They're not properly applying the regulative ideals they apply to the end of communism, to the means of achieving it. And so when it comes to extremists that want to murder millions of people to bring about a communist regime, no, we should not compromise with them because they're not motivated by the regulative ideals for the means of achieving their end. So that's the, the thing I want to say about communists. So I think that's exactly right. Now, when it comes to polarization over ordinary issues, I do think many people on both sides of the aisle currently see each other as fascists or evildoers, as people absolutely not to be negotiated with. And of course, surely there are some fascists who, again, I don't think should be negotiated with. But I also think that this entire situation exists in part because both sides think that they've discovered this objective moral truth, which leads us to sort of automatically conclude that the other side is just evil. I argue and give some examples in the Dark Side of Morality paper that if we adopt a more charitable view about what particular people on different sides of controversial issues are actually motivated by, it's pretty clear that they are motivated by similar regulative ideals as us, but that they simply weigh them differently or order them differently. So, for example, take mask wearing and COVID vaccinations. People on the side of mandating mask wearing and vaccinations are clearly looking to protect people from a kind of coercion namely from infection by a deadly disease due to the risky actions of others, in much the same way that we look to protect people from drunk drivers. On the other side, though, those against mandating mask wearing and vaccinations are also clearly concerned with preventing coercion too, namely coercing people to wear masks or to get a shot that in rare cases can have serious complications. So I think what we see in this case is people with similar regulative ideals. We do want to protect people from coercion. We just disagree over the best way to put this ideal into practice, given the costs involved. And my general point is that when it comes to disagreements like these, it's just not charitable to demonize the other side as fascists or evildoers, or to simply impose our extreme positions on those who disagree with us. Which I think, by the way, is an imprudent thing to do, given the many negative effects of polarization that we see all around us constantly. And my hope and belief is that a better human future is going to involve us engaging with each other more charitably to find solutions together to the issues that divide us. Again, you know, compromise solutions don't give either side everything that they want, but they also don't give one side 100% of what they want and the other side zero, which I think tends to lead to really bad things. Now, of course, other issues are even thornier, like abortion, um, for example, to take a particularly timely and obviously important and divisive issue. Now, on the one hand, I do think there are people of goodwill on both sides here, right? People who, who are sincerely out to protect women's lives and freedom, on the one hand, as well as people who sincerely believe that fetal life is really important to protect on the other. At the same time, I think there are also clearly others who are just trying to control other people, right? For example, people who not only want to entirely eliminate abortion, but also, you know, minimize access to contraception while doing very little to support working mothers and families. So whether any form of compromise is prudent or moral on an issue like this is really difficult. As again, I don't think we should compromise with fascists or people who simply want to impose their religious beliefs on other people. At the same time, complete refusal to compromise at all with others on issues like this is arguably imprudent too, as I think we're now beginning to see. Yes, we had Roe versus Wade for 50 years, but now the other side is probably going to undo it all while creating extremely restrictive laws, making abortions all but impossible for women to obtain, even in cases of rape or incest. 
Now, I don't have a pat political solution here, as again, I, I think it can be imprudent not to compromise at all on divisive issues, but also imprudent and immoral to compromise too much and with the wrong people. But again, it's my hope and belief that a better human future will involve us approaching people of goodwill more charitably to find solutions that we can accept together. Perhaps in this case, compromising on the burdens of avoiding unplanned pregnancy, such as shifting those burdens substantially towards men as new forms of birth control emerge, while providing much more uh, support for women and working families. I actually, maybe surprisingly, mostly agree with what you say about abortion as an area needing of, of compromise, although for not all the same reasons. I just think it's true that when you've got an issue that is so divisive like this, and I think I would add, you wouldn't add this, but I would add, and also because there is some genuine uncertainty about the issue. I think it's hard. I think there are good arguments on both sides. I lean pro-life, but I'm uncertain enough about it that I... Mm get nervous about really, really restrictive abortion regulations. I see where you're coming from with that. I worry, though, about the idea of shared ends being something that allows people to compromise with one another. I mean, if, if the means are so divergent, that doesn't necessarily leave much room for negotiation. I mean, I don't know if this is true about Nazi ideology, but we could imagine a possible world in which this is true, in which the Nazis had this egalitarian vision in the distant, distant, distant future that like, oh, we, we want to create a, this harmonious, equal human race. What's the way to do it? Well, first, we're going to have to have a thousand years of wiping out all the bad races. And, and, th and then 50,000 years from now, we'll have exactly the same sort of paradise that the communists wanted. That kind of thing makes me think that, well, for one thing, it, it, it exposes for me and you've already conceded this, but it exposes the shallowness of the, oh, at least your ends are good kind of a thing. And I agree yeah, with that, yeah. right? That it's not just the ends that matter in determining whether someone has the relevant regulative ideals to be worthy of compromise with. It also matters whether they have those ideals when it applied to the means of achieving their ends as well. That's right. So I guess the point is, if the, the Nazis modified for the sake of this example, if those modified Nazis would not be negotiable with, then it seems like shared ends don't get us very much mileage as far as each political side in the U.S. seeing each other as negotiating partners or potential negotiating partners, because shared ends don't matter that much when we di disagree this much about the means. Right. So, I mean, when it comes to the means, I think we also have to ask that question, right? And I do think, at least if we understand morality in terms of prudence, we can understand why we should be willing to compromise as a means. So it's not only the ideals of coercion minimization that my account holds that we should have as a guiding aim, but also the guiding commitment of being able to willing to negotiate on equitable grounds with the other side and not imposing ourselves upon them. What people currently lack, right? What politics in the United States is, and in many places, is a war where people on both sides are trying to impose their will on others rather than trying in good faith to arrive at something that both sides aren't going to regard as terrible. <laughs> well, do you have anything else to add? We can wrap it up. Anything else you wanted to touch on? Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm pretty, I'm pretty worn out. I get worn down mentally really quickly, especially in conversation. I, I'm, believe it or not, I'm, I'm really strongly introverted, right? So like conversational good and tech like really wears me down a lot more quickly than, than writing, uh, for example, does. So I think I'm kind of spent at this point. <laughs> well, I guess I better let you uh, recharge your batteries, but it's been a really good conversation. I look forward to hearing the edited thing. Cool. Well, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's always interesting talking to you. And I like talking to you because we disagree. Like, so we disagree on some things, right? I'm totally with you on the moral extremism stuff. I think it's a huge problem. And that's what really the dark side of morality paper is about. And it's what I'm trying to really grapple with, with the whole view about prudence and negotiation. Like, my, my, my whole project is like, let's become less extremists. Extremism is a huge problem. And I think 
jurisprudence as a way of, of helping with that. But it, it's fun in part because we agree on some of those things, but we so, so firmly diverge when it comes to fundamental meta-ethical issues and, and all the rest. So it's always a good good talking to you. Oh, yeah. I think one of the pleasures of philosophical conversation is, you know, unexpected points of convergence with, with someone you normally disagree with and um, sometimes the opposite. Sometimes somebody you normally see eye to eye with surprises you with, with something they, they say. So, yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks for having me.